You are listening to Been There, Done That, an original podcast series produced by the Quantum Economic Development Consortium, or QEDC, featuring leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. I'm Jonathan Felbinger, Deputy Director of QEDC. Joining me today is Scott Davis, CEO of Vescent Photonics and volunteer serving on the QEDC Steering Committee. Since founding the company in 2002, Vescent has produced a portfolio of technologies, including waveguides, electro-optics, tunable lasers, and electronics for precision laser control, including in harsh environments. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you, happy to be here. To get started, Scott, tell us a little bit about Vescent Photonics. What is the nature of your business and how did you found it? Sure. A couple things. One, we recently restructured the company. We're actually best in technologies now, but photonics is fine. We still, it's still a big piece of our business. And how did it start? It started in my garage. It was, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but in this case it was true. It was a garage startup. It was shortly after graduate school. I was working for a company that went through a round of layoffs, felt like my job wasn't secure. I knew how to live on not a lot of money because I was recently a graduate student. And I met the two folks that were the co-founders of the company. And we had this idea for a photonic integrated circuit technology that could bend light without any moving parts that we were very excited about. And so we wanted to start a company. And so we did. And we started it with, it didn't come for money, didn't have a lot of money, I had $3,000 on my bank account. Yeah, I had to quit because I had an inventions agreement with my current employer. And so my partner, who's still my partner, he kept working. He's the operational manufacturing side of the company. He kept working and he split his paycheck with me until we got some SBIR funds, which is how we started. And so I think that first year I paid myself something like $12,000. It wasn't a lot, but that's what it takes when you want to start something. As you think about founding Vestin Photonics, growing into Vestin Technologies, what are some of the milestones that stick out in your mind along that pathway from a startup to a sustainable business? Yeah, let me, that's a great question. And a huge eye-opener for me was learning the difference between a functional prototype and a product. And I used to have this very naive idea that, look, we demonstrated it working in the lab, we're basically all the way done. When you actually wanna transition something to a production environment where you're selling it commercially, you're only about 10% of the way done. You've got most of the work ahead of you. People on the academic government lab side, when I tell this to them, they, they look at me, they don't believe me, but anyone who's been through it will be like, yeah, it's about 10%. And so that was a huge eye opener. So when we started the company, we had this idea of, combining liquid crystals from the display industry and waveguides from the telecom industry to create this new type of electro-optic. We did get some SBIRs. We realized that the display LCs weren't going to work. The telecom waveguides weren't going to work. And it's okay, we got to roll up our sleeves. We also had bills to pay. We didn't want to be just a government contracting house. We wanted to have, you know, race to product and get things out there that we could sell. And it was like, what do we know how to do? And so I came out of Jilla and NIST. Jilla is a joint institute between the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the University of Colorado. Since I was there, they won a whole bunch of Nobel Prizes and become a bit famous. NIST was already famous. It's even more famous. We learned there how to stabilize and control electronics, how to drive lasers for trapping and cooling atoms. And while in grad school and a postdoc, we always had folks reaching out saying, hey, how do you do that? How do you do that? And so we had the idea, maybe that's a product. And so that was the beginning of our product. Back then, it, it was serving what we called the AMO, Atomic Molecular and Optical Market. Now we call it the quantum market. It's the same thing. It's wrangling 
photons to enable them to do what you need to do for quantum systems, whether it's a quantum computer or network or sensor or clock or whatever it is. The challenges are very hard. We learned how to do it in grad school. We productized that. That kept supplementing funds while we were working on the waveguide piece. And then the waveguide piece, we got working and we sold that off to a large public company in 2016. That was a big deal. I went to go work for that public company for a number of years. Analog Devices, the company, a great company. I learned a lot there. I came back in January of 2020, now as CEO. And it was really then when it said, hey, look, this whole quantum thing is taking off. We're already positioned in the space. Let's double down on that. Let's grow into this. Let's help enable and support the community. And so that's since January 2020, where we've more than quadrupled in size. And yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. Given your experience starting as a scientist, then working in industry, and now as an entrepreneur, how has your mindset evolved as you approach your work? So it's very product focused. I think you need to be racing the product. I just keep saying that again and again. It's really hard to get something out there as a product and to get it where it can be manufactured by assembly tech. And so that frames everything. What are you going to spend your time on? What are you going to spend your bandwidth on? Do you have the resources to fully productize it? What is it going to sell for? You got to make payroll every two weeks and you got to be sustainable. I love the technology. I love the business side. I love the intersection between those. And that's really where quantum is right now, which is for me, super freaking exciting. That is, it's just starting to take off. And for Vessen, we're playing a, a parallel approach. We've got products that support the scientific community. Those are enabling the quantum R&D. That's where most of the market is right now. Even our commercial customers, people who are building quantum computers, they're still in the R&D phase. Then we also have a line of products where we're ruggedizing these things to leave the lab, to go out there into the field, to be low size, weight, and power, and reasonable cost, and to be environmentally rugged. That's the bigger play. So we're monetizing now by selling to the researchers, and we're positioning to enable deployed quantum, which is going to be a much bigger market. And we're positioning ourselves to help and enable and grow with all of it. Vescent is one of the founding members of QEDC, and you've been very involved in our community from the start. As you are tracking the evolution of the quantum market, how do you identify new market needs? And do you find there are distinct factors or characteristics of your quantum product lines? Yeah, that's a great question. How do you work on something that's going to sell and make a difference? And how do you decide what that is? And do you chase after the market that's right in front of you? Or do you skate to where the puck's going to be and try to position yourself for a potential bigger market? And you've got to have the resources to get to be sustainable to get to that spot. Every year we do a technology and product roadmapping session. We bring the whole team in. And so we bring in the R&D folks that are working on the low TRL things. We bring in the engineering staff and the production and the sales and marketing. And we look at all the technologies we could be working on. And there's, there's always way more that we've got bandwidth and resources to do. We come up with a list. Oh my God, these are all amazing things. And then we prioritize them and we say, hey, if we could build this, would it sell? Then we go, all right, can we get it funded? Is there a way to basically through government contracts or customer engagement, is there a way we can develop this? And then the manufacturing guys go, even if you can build it, even if you can build one, 
can you manufacture it? Is it something that's manufacturable? All of those pieces have to come together for us to say, yeah, this is something we're going to go after. And so then we prioritize all those. And this is really two prong. It's one prong is prioritizing the tech development. And that's something that's got a four or five year product horizon. And then we got another prong that is the product development. And this is more like a 12 to 24 month horizon. These are what we want to get on the market in the next 12 to 24 months. And it's a collective decision. And we listen to all the stakeholders. And then we make our bets. And then we do this every year. And then we look back and we say, how do we do? Did we get this out? Did this sell? And we adjust. I do believe that a good business plan is a flexible business plan. And so you have to be, you know, you got to be a bit flexible. We're in the supply chain space. So we sell to almost everybody. And so that gives us interesting information. We go, okay, this is a really cool piece of technology, but we've only seen one customer saying that they want it. And I go, ah, that doesn't have a lot of legs. But then there's another thing that maybe from a technical perspective is not quite as sexy, but from a marketable perspective is. And we go, oh my God, we've gotten dozens of folks over here saying, if we could do this, they would buy it. And so all of these factors go into deciding what do we focus our bandwidth on? Implicit in your answer is the importance of having a team that understands the market and listens to your customers. Yep. You always have to listen. Absolutely. That's right. And there's where things like QEDC have been amazing. First of all, I love quantum mechanics. It's my favorite branch of physics. It's the physics of the microscopic and the very cold, and it's very different than our classical world. And things like entanglement, collapse of the wave function, all these incredible things. I've always loved it. I love the idea of helping our customers build systems that exploit quantum phenomena to push the envelope on sort of performance capabilities, whether it's in sensing or computing or timing. I love it. I love the technology space. I love the, the business space of it. And I love that intersection. And part of that is because the ground is still moving under our feet, the sand is still moving, it's important to have as broad a visibility as possible. And that's where things like QEDC are super enabling. It helps us network. It helps us talk to folks. It helps us connect with customers and partners. We're very community-minded. We like partnering with folks. We like moving fast. And a lot of times partnering allows you to move faster. And you're absolutely right. You got to listen to everybody. So lessons. When we were first doing our waveguide work, I was so proud of what we were doing. I was like, this is just such an amazing idea. We can't let anyone know. They will all steal it. We, in parallel, got a bunch of patents, submitted, and was like, okay, we're going to have our big unveil. I'm going to give a presentation at a conference. I gave my talk, and there was this sense of after it was done, it's like nobody cared. And uh, people are into their own problems and their own world. And one of our sales guys, he, he keeps telling me, we don't sell lasers, we sell solutions. And that's absolutely right. You got to listen to the customers, listen to their pain points, and figure out how you can provide value to them. And ultimately, you want to get money from them, and that's how it's going to work. They're going to give you money because you're helping them solve one of their problems. And you have to listen. Now that you've established a broad product portfolio, how do you think about sustaining and growing the team at Best in Photonics? And what qualities do you find most important in candidates? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are certain categories that there are certain characteristics that I think are across the board. You got to be team-minded. This is really hard stuff. Quantum is insanely hard. No one's going to do it on themselves. We all have to work together. And I consider everybody in the company technologists, whether it's admin, finance, sales, our buyers, our program managers, and of course, the assemblers, the scientists, the engineers, we're all in the same boat. 
you got to have a mindset where you like working with teams and it's about it's solution driven and you got to care about what you're doing. You have to take ownership and pride in it. These are corporate values that we convey throughout the whole company. And then for the different folks, it's uh, for our staff scientist positions. And I say this, people think I'm joking. I'm not. I want them to be smarter than me. I want these to be people that every time I talk to them, I learn something. And we got it. We're very particular. For our assemblers, I want them to take pride in, hey, we're building something that is enabling the future. I want them to get excited about that. For all the engineers and the support staff, I want them to share in the vision of the mission. And it's both a culture fit and then an aptitude fit. In addition to that sense of excitement in the company and its work, how do you foster a culture of innovation within the company? It's a culture of lifelong learning and people get excited about the new. And that's another thing we look for in folks. Are you excited about creating the future? And I care deeply about the professional development of all the employees. We've got employees that came into us from with just high school degrees as assemblers that have then transitioned into engineering and are going back to school. We send people out for ongoing sort of upscaling training with you know local organizations. How do you clean optics? We had one guy who came in as a shipping and receiving clerk. Now he is helping build laser systems that are enabling cold atom inertial sensors. And he's excited about that. He feels good. It's something he can go back and tell his family about. And so a culture of lifelong learning, a culture of excitement about the new. And as you grow, maintaining that culture is tricky. And so when companies try to grow too quickly, too fast, that's a hard thing to do. And so that's something that I'm very cognizant of. So we're just about to cross the 50 employee point. We're still a very small company. But as you continue to grow, you've got to have lieutenants and managers in the organization that share that vision and convey that throughout the whole organization. And other companies have done this. And so I look at other companies and go, oh, how did they do it? But it is something that you have to tend to and you got to watch. As you think about your product portfolio, have you found it necessary to modify it or in what oh, ways yeah. have you found it necessary to modify and evolve your product offerings over time? Yeah. One of the hardest things is when you realize a product is a dud and yet you put your heart and soul into it and you're excited about the performance and the capabilities, but it's a dud either because it's not selling, margins aren't where it should be and you don't have a path to it or it's problematic. And you got to have the courage to say, I'm going to kill that product line and or that product. And we've had to do that. And so you have to do that. And then you also have to listen to the customers and go, all right, what are their pain points and what is in our technological toolkit and how can we bring products that help solve our customers' problems? And so we're always looking at that. Right now, a lot of the market, almost all the market is in, as I said, R&D or scientifics. And that's a tricky spot because a lot of times when you're selling to academics, everyone's doing their own weird little thing and you could end up chasing your tail. Like you... You build a one-off for this guy. You build a one-off for that guy. One of our marketing people, they say, they, they talk about the 80-20 rule where they say, you're never going to have a product that satisfies 100% of potential customers. But what you want to do is figure out what sort of the key building blocks that satisfy critical mass, say 80%. And so we're always looking for that. And so things like optical frequency combs, we love those because those sell into all of the verticals. We've got quantum computing companies that need them. We've got sensor and networking companies that need them. And of course, clocks. And, and so I love that. And I go, oh, and let's make one of these that's mil spec, ruggedized and small swap, size, weight, and power. And I go, that's going to be a differentiating product. And so we go, all right, we're going to commit to that. 
And so we, we're always looking at how can we provide the most value to our customers? And what are the products that are going to move the meter the most? From all the metrics of can we build it? Can we make money at it? And is it going to sell? You've described pursuing federally funded research and development work as a successful path to commercializing products. How have you navigated the accompanying regulations to stay compliant? And are there particular regulations that keep you up at night? Yeah. So look, when you do government dollars, when done properly, it's equity-free investment in your product and technology roadmap. You're not selling part of your company to investors and you're helping offset your development costs. When done improperly, it's a treadmill that you get stuck on. And sometimes companies will get a large federal contract. They'll staff up to work that, but that contract ends. And then you can get in the cycle where you've got to then support the staff that you brought on to work that. And then they start saying, how are you going to do that? They're going to chase more government contracts. And then you get into the cycle where all you're doing is chasing government dollars. And there are entities that do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you got to decide if you want to be one of those or not. We don't. We're a manufacturing company. That's where we make our money. But we do use the government dollars to help offset our development costs. And so when we look at this, we always go, what products are going to spin out of this contract? And are they going to be winners? And if the answer is none or no, then we don't do it. And we turn down government dollars. And then from the regulation side, when we started, we didn't take any VC money. We did it all through bootstrap, which it's trade-offs. But the government dollars were super important. But I didn't learn in graduate school how to handle DCMA regulations, Defense Contracting Material Audits, or DCAA, Defense Contracting Audit Agency. You're taking money from the federal government. You're buying things on cost plus programs. That's not yours. It's the feds. And so you buy something on a cost plus program. You don't own it. The federal government owns it. And they might come in and say, where's my blah, blah, blah. And you better be able to show them. And as a taxpayer, I appreciate that. But there's a fair amount of overhead in managing that. And if you don't get that right, it can shut your company down. So you have to get that right. And the other thing with the federal contracts is, and I support this as a taxpayer, they're a fixed margin. They're not a big profit maker. You can do it for developing technology, you know, and the government is doing it for an ROI. Either an ROI, they're going to help American companies grow, and then American companies are going to be successful and commercialize products and pay taxes, and they get an ROI on that, or it's going to provide some differentiating capability. And, and I support both of those missions. So when we look at them, we're always going, what products are going to come out of this? How does it align with our product and technology roadmap? Is it a good fit? Besson Technologies is now 20 years into its journey. Looking yeah. back, what were some of the most significant challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? One of the biggest ones is getting through that valley of death and actually transitioning it from, hey, this works, this circuit works as a prototype in a lab, but I got to turn it into a product. And we, the first time we overcame that was just through sweat equity and pain. We just kept hammering at it. Grit is another key value. You can't give up. Perseverance. And so that was a big one, a big eye opener of, hey, we're going from you can build a one off to no, this is something you're going to have to build thousands of. And in order for you to make money at it, it can't be built by PhDs. It's got to be built by techs. And so that was a huge freaking hurdle. And then also with technical founders, you often want to hire versions of yourself. That's who self-affirming, but you want to fight against that. You want to be honest with yourself about where your gaps and weaknesses are, and then build out your team to supplement that. And whether that's on the marketing side or the sales side or the project management side or the admin side. So in terms of compliance, for example, 
bringing in someone whose job is just keeping track of that, you can think, oh, I don't want to pay that salary for that person, but you have to, and it's going to pay for itself. And so you got to take those bets on, we brought our first salesperson on, they wanted more money than we wanted to spend, but we went for it and then they paid for themselves. So you have to be willing to take those bets and look at the whole thing and try to be honest with yourself about your own personal weaknesses and then the weaknesses and gaps in the company and think about how you are going to fill them out. So one of the things that I would tell the team is, let's say, imagine ourselves as a $50 million a year company. We're not there yet. And imagine yourself as that. What would we look like? And then you look at the org chart and you go, okay, what do we not have? And then you prioritize that and you think, we need this person first. We need that person next. It's a bit like a game of chess. You're looking at the next move, but you also want to be looking two or three moves out as well. Besson Technologies operates within a global and competitive marketplace. How do you differentiate Besson Technologies? Yeah, so we sell all over the world. We do have partners and competitors that are all over the world. One, I think competition is good. I got a lot of respect for folks that we compete with. If you think of it as a game and you're playing tennis, for example, you get better by playing against a better player. And so we certainly have plenty of that. How we differentiate? So one of, one of the biggest lasers for quantum companies is Toptica. They're a German company. Great freaking company. Tons of respect for those guys. They're friends of mine. They're making great money serving the research market. We serve the research market too. One of the ways we can differentiate is let's take a gamble. Let's spend some resources making something that can, a frequency comb that can operate on the back of a Jeep as it's driving down a dirt road. The market for that right now is nothing. And I go, it's because it doesn't exist because the world hasn't built one of those yet. And so that's one of the ways that we can be maybe a little bit more aggressive by going after performance capabilities that don't exist with current suppliers in the market. And it's a bet that this is going to solve a key need, whether it's in navigation, radar, sensing, whatever it is, that us being able to provide that solution to these customers. But that's a tricky thing too, because you go to those customers and you go, oh, we got a rugged frequency comb. They're going to go, I don't know what the hell a frequency comb is. So then you got to know what their pain points are. And is it a low phase noise oscillator for radar? Is it better timing solutions for precision navigation and timing or GPS holdover? And then you got to speak the right language. It's a tricky thing. So that's part of how we differentiate is we, we're looking a bit further out and we're being a bit more aggressive in terms of let's make these be ruggedized and small swaps so that way they can leave the lab with a bit of a gamble that it's going to happen. What is your long-term vision for the company as well as for the quantum industry it supports? My next vision is I want to get Vessen over $100 million a year in revenue. I've got a line of sight on how to do that, but it's we got our risks and I want to have good margins so that way we can fund our own development. I like working with our government partners. Not only does it give us some equity-free investment, it also helps us with requirement capture and customer engagement, but it can move slow. And so I'd love to be in a position where I've just got tens of millions of dollars of IRAD, internal research and development, that we can be funding our own new development. That just sounds super freaking fun to me. I also want this industry to take off. I believe in the capabilities. Quantum mechanics is the underlying physics of everything. And two big things that happened in the 20th century were the invention of the transistor and the invention of the laser. And that led to the computer revolution and the information revolution through the internet. Both of those would not happen without quantum mechanics. The transistor and the laser are fundamentally quantum mechanical devices. That freaking changed the world. I want to be a part of doing that for the next century. 
clearly a student of history. Which physicist or engineer do you find most inspiring in your work? Oh my God, so many. So Ludwig Boltzmann blows me away. That guy, he invented quantum mechanics before quantum mechanics. He said, what if the world is composed of these quantized things called atoms? He didn't invent that idea, but he also said, look, if they can only exist at quantized energies, then he re-derived all of thermal physics. He, he came up with the whole field of statistical mechanics. My God, talk about genius. I also think John Harrison, who invented the marine chronometer, it was a stable oscillator. It went through multiple generations. He came out with his H4, which was a handheld precision clock that allowed ships back in the 19th century to navigate without crashing on reefs. That invention enabled the British government to project power through its navy and control trade, which led to the British Empire being the largest empire the world has ever seen for a period of time. That invention was key to it. And so I go, oh my God, let's do one of those and let's figure out a way to monetize it and figure out a way to help our customers monetize it. But I could go on and on. Jack Kilby, he's an electrical engineer, won a Nobel Prize in physics for his, his helping being a part of inventing the integrated circuit. There are so many technologists, businessmen, scientists, yeah, standing on shoulders, right? Stop. thank you for serving on the QEDC steering committee. What role do you see for QEDC in growing the quantum market? And how can we in particular help small businesses like yours? QDC already is. And so with any, and it doesn't mean you don't ask the question of how can you do better? And I'm happy to be a part of it. It's been awesome for my company. It's also been awesome for me personally. I've, I've met a lot of friends. Just, I like working with other smart, ambitious people. And there are plenty of them in QDC. Professional societies, first of all, you get out of it what you put into it. That's always the case. If you're just going to pay your dues and not do anything and hope for an ROI, it doesn't really work that way. But if you put some into it, I think the quantum marketplace is amazing. That's helping these young, scrappy companies find customers, helping them learn how to run the business side. I think the Quantum Business 101 is awesome. I think, again, you've got these amazingly ambitious, brilliant people who are starting companies and they learn, they went to say physics grad school, but let's help them with the business side of things. And so that's great. I think the networking opportunities are great. I think the workshops are great. The reports are great. I'm a huge fan of QEDC. It's exciting for me to be on the ground floor of, this is SPIE, but right at the beginning. And let's have a voice in crafting this. Let's have a voice in creating these enabling capabilities and helping these small companies turn into big companies. And it's super fun and exciting. Thank you, Scott, for joining us today and for sharing your outlook. And thanks to everyone for listening to Been There, Done That. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.